Canto 11 of the Purgatory stays with the souls who are bearing these terrible loads of themselves on their back. And it seems like quite a conventional, pious opening. It's a long prayer. In fact, it's the only complete prayer in the whole of the Divine Comedy. And it seems like the Lord's Prayer. But we've been asked to consider the subtleties of this because that's what draws us into the transformation which these souls themselves are undergoing as well. For example, it's the souls themselves that are now praying, whereas all the souls that we've met so far in the anti-purgatory ask for the prayers of others. And I think that's a sign that they're in this different stage, this different phase, this different state of mind, whereby they're taking responsibility themselves for their path towards paradise. They've awoken up that much, you might say. It's also striking um, to recognise that they're praying the Lord's Prayer in the vernacular. Remember Dante writes in the vernacular Florentine, which becomes the vernacular Italian. And readers of his time would have immediately recognised that this was quite a dangerous thing to do. The church did not approve. Um, it could even be called blasphemous. So putting even a potentially blasphemous act into purgatory um, is quite a provocative thing to do. I think it's another indicator from Dante that he's saying you've got to move on from the standard church practices to move more into God's life. That's what these souls are doing here. And it's also striking that they offer a kind of extended version of the Lord's Prayer. Um, they don't just recite um, the biblical words, but expand it as their sight allows. So, for example, when they say, Our Father in heaven, they then remark how the highest heavens participate, participate most fully in divine life, in God's love and because they know it and see it directly, and how as we reach down towards the earth, what's felt more there is the spirit or the influence um, of divine life. So there's a, a keen awareness of how um, heaven and earth relate together, um, bound together by love, but also more or less participating in divine life through the love which is a kind of knowing and sight and desiring and sharing. That's emphasised when, as the Lord's Prayer unfolds, they riff further. And so for it's taught when the uh, sentences on the Lord's Prayer referring to will um, are rehearsed, they talk about their wills being aligned to the divine will. When the sentences in the Lord's Prayer talk about receiving the bread of heaven, they talk about feeding more fully on the divine sustenance and when they come to the bit that talks about um, doing good works um, they talk about acting most fully out of that awareness of the divine. So it's a very active prayer um, that is one that is opening up their sight even as they're praying it which of course is really what prayer is about. It's not about trying to change God's mind it's about moving more fully into the divine life.
Fante makes a passing comment about how it looks to him that they're praying in reality as sometimes we experience in our dreams. And I think this is a really interesting little comment. Um, it's those hypnagogic states, you know, perhaps when you wake up in the middle of the night and maybe you've had an anxious dream, you've had an erotic dream, you've had a hateful dream, a murderous dream. And the implication is that that wakefulness can itself become a kind of prayer where you sit with the state that through the dream, through the half-awakened state, you've realised is in your unconscious, in the depths of your soul, is part of your state of mind. And I think the implication is that a good prayer, when those moments arise, is just to stay with it, to stay with the image perhaps of the dream, and let it work its way out a bit, let it shift and change, a bit like these souls now so burdened, evidently burdened here in purgatory, are staying with it, they're letting that work its way out as well. Dante is very moved by this sight and he offers a kind of prayer in response, saying to us readers, you know, we should wish them the weightlessness and the rise that enables them to join the wheeling stars. Um, and this is how prayer is more fully seen to work now. It's not the rather mechanical means of grace, which you sometimes feel is preached, but instead um, it's a virtuous circle. You know, one prayer leads to another prayer, um, and they kind of gather together, lifting the souls uh, mutually um, to the wheeling stars. Um, another very important but subtle difference that is related to that um, is that um, Dante and Virgil ask these souls for the path to the shortest steps that can lead, this up, lead them up the mountain. Now this isn't just a sort of shortcut up purgatory if you know one. Um, of course the shortest path up purgatory is precisely the divine way. Um, and so there's a sense of mutual aid, um, you know, tell us what you know, tell us what you know. Um, and the souls do know about God's ways here. And that's precisely why um, they're on this terrace of purgatory, suffering in the way they are. But they share that freely with Dante and Virgil. And sure enough, they're told that if they move along this way, they will find um, the path that they, um, as particularly Dante, the living soul, can take up Mount Purgatory. So there's no possessiveness here. That's gone. You know, much as Dante in the previous canto could turn from the beautiful imagery he saw on Purgatory's marble walls um, to look to the next thing, not anxious that he had to sort of hold on to the glimpses of beauty he'd seen because he trusted that more beauty was to come. So too here there's a sense that wisdom about the next steps is freely given and can be freely exchanged. Um, that is a marked difference. However, we then meet some of the souls um, and get more of a direct sense of what they're now struggling with. Um, the first soul we meet is called Umberto. He is a Ghibelline from a very admirable family. You know, he had illustrious ancestors, of which he could rightly be proud. But we get the sense that he hasn't worked out how to relate to that pride properly. Um, he uses the first person singular very frequently in his few lines. You know, I'm this, I'm that, um, I'm part of the other. 
I think what Dante is showing us here is how this kind of pride is worked through. Umberto knows that he's proud of his family. Um, he also says to Dante, you know, you may not have heard of us. And I think that is a genuinely humble remark, um, unlike the characters in the Inferno that by that implication said you jolly well should have heard of us. Um, and he's got to sit, you might say, here in Purgatory between the two poles of, on the one hand, knowing that, in a way, um, his illustrious ancestors are nothing um, in the great scheme of things, but, on the other hand, feeling very identified with them um, and feeling a sense of pride in them and not quite being able to move to a position beyond um, just that identification. Um, and it's in, in Jungian psychology, it's sometimes called the transcendent function, when you hold two positions which are in attention, they can be quite painful, but it's important to hold both positions so they can work on each other and then something new might emerge from them, a new sense of, say, his relationship to his family. Um, but that's not happened to him yet. You know, it's a bit like what was intimated in the comment about the dreams, that we wake up realising we've had, say, a hateful dream, knowing that the hate is part of our psyche, but also feeling uncomfortable about that. And the point is to try and stay with both those feelings so they can work on each other and something genuinely new can emerge. You know, it's admitting in the moment that you don't know quite what to do with these different states. But there's also the blessing in that, because not knowing now means that you're going to discover something completely new later. That's part of the dynamics of purgatory. Another soul then calls out to Dante. It turns out he's someone called Odorisi, who was an illustrator. He's bent slightly less low to the ground, um, suggesting that he's got a bit more room for manoeuvre around this issue of pride in his soul. And that's indicated because he says that he recognises that although he was a good illustrator, he was actually eclipsed by a greater illustrator, a chap called Franco Bolognese. And again, you get a different sort of level of this tension working out. Odorisi is proud of his work, and it's hard for him to recognise that someone else was greater. But he does so by trying to reflect a bit on the nature of fame in particular. And he remarks how, you know, fame comes and goes like the grass in the field. Um, how fame, in a way, only lasts when a greater glory doesn't eclipse it. So in other words, if you're famous for a long time, it's probably a reflection of the fact that nothing greater has come along rather than an expression of your own greatness. If you're alert to Boethius's The Consolations of Philosophy, you know, which had feature, has featured quite a lot before and will feature again, um, it's also striking that at this moment Odorisi isn't aware of Boethius's comments that there is a true fame, but that's the fame that reflects wholly the glory of God, um, whereas it were the fame of the individual is completely eclipsed or absorbed into the glory of God. That's the fame that's lasting fame um, and worthy fame. Um, he's not quite able to hold that in his mind at this minute and so doesn't mention it. Um, there's also an allusion to the fact that this might be a um, a real struggle, a real trial for Dante, because Odorisi also remarks that in relation to poets, 
maybe one has been born who already has stolen, as it were, fame's nest from previous poets. Um, and of course, he's talking to Dante, the implication that is Dante is the poet that will have claimed that mantle for himself. Um, and it's an indicator of how Dante too is experiencing the purgatory, because look, he's got a lot to be very proud of. He's an astonishing poet, um, one of the greatest in the Christian tradition. And yet how is that going to hinder him from rising up the very mountain that he's celebrating in his poetry? And I think we get an indication too here in this moment of Dante's painful tension inside, um, knowing that he's got a great gift, but knowing that his gift transmits something even more glorious. And how's he going to sit with those two things together? But as if also to give an intimation that Dante is beginning to sense that there's a third position beyond this horrible tension of feeling pride, proud and knowing you are and not being able to give it up. Um, he asks about another soul that he sees, um, a chap called Provenzan Salvani. Now, it turns out um, that Provenzan was another Ghibelline, another great warrior, um, a very proud man for his exploits in the civil wars. Um, but he is here on Mount Purgatory, and that um, makes Dante ask because he knows that Provenzan died fairly recently. He was a late penitent, so should in theory be in the anti-purgatory. You remember that the formula in anti-purgatory had been that if you're a late penitent, then you need to spend as much time on those lower reaches as you'd actually lived. And that was the mechanical means of grace intimated before. So that's now going to be amended um, here now. It turns out that Provenzan had performed a single act in his life um, that cut through his otherwise proud um, way of life. Um, a friend of his had needed to raise a ransom and he, Provenzan, had begged on behalf of his friend in the marketplace for the money to release his friend. Um, it was a deeply painful thing for him to do, um, to beg, as it were, rather than to be seen in all his military splendour and glory. But that moment had shown there was something else in his heart, and that there was another part of his soul that wasn't ruled by. You know, maybe this worthy pride, um, he could also humble himself. And that little moment is a bit like the moments we'd seen earlier on the terrace, you know, the moment where Mary could say yes, where Trajan could turn to the widow, where David, um, the king, could dance. Um, and that has been his salvation to this point in purgatory. It's why Dante learns he's not, as it were, serving time in anti-purgatory. Um, so we learn sort of two things um, as we deepen our understanding of this stage, this zone, um, this state of mind. And one is that the law of love can always overwrite any other laws, you know, much as the souls on this terrace are praying the Lord's Prayer, but riffing on it, extending it, developing it, and more so over in the vernacular. And that's what love is about. It overwrites and the things that, say, particularly the church has taught you were written in stone. But we also learn, again, that a single moment that overwrites your usual state of mind um, can make a huge difference. And I think, in a way, you might say this is the kind of lesson 
about pride um, that ends this canto. It's not just that you have to sit with the painful realisation of your own embeddedness in pride and how difficult that is to give up even when it's recognised. But in life, go for those little moments, the kind of equivalent of begging for your friend, because those will spark a new kind of life in you and lead you much more closely, take you much more closely, open you much more fully to the fuller participation of God's life, which right at the beginning we'd heard those who are in the highest heavens enjoy with the Divine Presence.